So we're going to continue today. We're going to go back into the book of Luke. We're going to continue on in the account of the life of Christ. Now, remember, it's been a little bit, so we've been in Luke, so just to kind of catch everybody up here. Remember that Jesus at this point in the book of Luke, even though we're only in chapter 11, uh, and we'll get into chapter 12 this morning, remember that Jesus is now towards the end of his ministry here on earth. He's three and a half years, give or take, uh, into his ministry here, and he's only here for three and a half years. The events which will transpire in his ultimate arrival in Jerusalem for the Passover in which he will be tried and crucified are mere weeks away. So this chapter occurs at a time frame in which all of the things that, all the miracles, all of these, he's done them all. It's all been done. Uh, he has now accomplished all of these things, and he's done it everywhere. You'll recall that he started up in the, up in the north part of the country, and that was more the rural part. And so down in the south, I mean, you're, this is Jerusalem. They're sophisticated, right? They're the ones who are educated. And um, I don't know, we've got this country preacher up north who supposedly is doing a bunch of miracles or something. But, you know, those people up there aren't educated anyway. So who knows what he's doing, some sleight of hand or something. But, you know, if he were really the prophet of God, he'd come down and do it down here in front of us. And, you know, you can just kind of you can see where those folks in Jerusalem, they send representatives up there, but they don't, you don't leave the city to go to the country very often to check that kind of stuff out. Wait for them to come to you. Well, of course, Jesus does come to them. He does. He leaves the Galilean region and comes down to Jerusalem, and this is that moment. And what do you know? Instead of sleight of hand or something else, he takes a guy who is mute and has him speak. And they all know he's mute. I mean, he's been mute his whole life. And suddenly Jesus loosens his tongue and the guy speaks and praises God. And the people are, of course, all wondering after him. And, and that's not the only miracle, but that's the one in chapter 11. And they see it with their own eyes, watch it occur right in front of them. And they still don't believe. I mean, they still don't believe. Even though they finally get to see it for themselves. One of the Pharisees in Luke 11 invites Jesus to the main meal, the, the afternoon meal. Jesus shows up, walks in, goes right to the table, doesn't ceremonially, ceremonially wash his hands. <gasps> How could you not do that? They're all offended, you know, because, I mean, you have to. I mean, you're supposed to be a man of God, you know, washing your hands. And, of course, Jesus deliberately does this because there's nothing in the law of Moses about ceremonially washing your hands before you eat. This is just their tradition. They've dreamed this up. And they're all real hot about it. And there's a big competition amongst them because that's who they are. And Jesus, of course, says to them, well, you know, you Pharisees are quite the guys. You wash the outside of the cup, but you don't really pay attention to the inside. The inside is full of all kinds of terrible things that you guys aren't paying any attention to. And the lawyers are like, well, wait a minute. If you're going to condemn them, you're going to condemn us too. Um, how you mention that now that you have? Uh, you guys lay burdens on everyone that you yourselves won't bear. And you build tombs to the prophets like, oh, you know, we would. If a prophet of God himself actually arrived, we would welcome him with open arms. 
think so, huh? Because here, of course, is not just a prophet, the prophet, the very son of God is, is literally right there. And like all, the, all of their fathers, for whom they built the tombs of their prophets, who their fathers killed, here they are with a prophet and they don't accept him either. And you would think, right? You would think that they could connect the dots, that there'd be just some moment of self-reflection. There really appear to be any. Uh, he speaks to them and points out their hypocrisy for them. Again, I don't think Jesus is necessarily angry with them. I don't think that this is a, a moment of any kind of... Um, you know, I don't think he's speaking to them in a big, loud voice with, you know, clenched fists or anything. I think he just speaks the truth to them. You guys have a problem. You guys wash the outside of the cup, but you don't wash the inside. You guys lay burdens on people you won't bear. You guys build the tombs of the prophets and say, oh, if only a prophet were sent of God today, we would accept him. Well, what about John? John the Baptist is clearly a prophet of God. Everybody thinks so. Well, except you guys. And here's Jesus clearly baptized by John and fulfilling the role of the Messiah right in front of them. And I mean, he points all this out to them and we pick up today's passage, Luke eleven fifty three. So when he left there, that is this, this main meal, well, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to be very hostile. I mean, they follow him out. They don't, they don't just let him walk out. They follow him out. And they, be, they are just hostile and question him closely on many subjects. We've got lots of arguments we have amongst ourselves. We've got lots of theological things we can't figure out. So we're going to start questioning you closely. I mean, we're going to really put you under the microscope. We're going to ask you piercing questions and plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Really, guys? No repentance? No moment of just, is it us? I mean, we say that if God sent a prophet, we'd accept him. And I know most everyone thinks that John is a prophet, but, but he condemned us, so he can't possibly be a prophet. And of course, here's Jesus. He's condemning us too. So he can't be a prophet either. Now, Wait, can you guys make the mute speak? No. Can you give sight to the blind? No. Blame walk? Can you feed the hungry? I, you know, any of the things that Jesus has done, can you do any of these works? And that he's empowered his disciples to do. Can you do them? No, you can't do any of them. Don't these kind of seem like the work of God? Isn't it? You, you're looking at a guy who does nothing but good. Jesus loves people. He's compassionate. He's kind. He is taking care of the sick and of the poor. And he's feeding people. He, the common people absolutely love him. Couldn't you guys stop for just one second and wonder if maybe it's you? Apparently not. Uh, apparently not. Because they don't. Instead, they go out there and we are going to prove that he is a bad guy. And so we're going to question him and we're going to find some inconsistency. We're going to put him into some kind of a trap. We're going to force him to make 
some kind of public statement that is, is, he's going to be embarrassed by and we're going to be able to use it to convince everyone that this guy doesn't really speak for God. It's really kind of sad. In fact, it's enormously sad. Because these are the guys who put themselves forward as the representatives of God. They stand up and say, we speak for God. So what does Jesus do? And this goes on to chapter 12. Jesus responds to this entire situation in Luke 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances... Okay, so, and we just laid out the circumstances, right? We've had this, this dinner, and now we've stepped outside, and now we've got these guys, and this is in front of a big crowd. In fact, it says, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they're stepping on one another, and in the midst of all of this, here are the scribes and the Pharisees questioning him closely and intently and hostile and just doing anything they can to try to get this guy to say something. And in the midst of all of this, He began saying to his disciples, first of all, I mean, Jesus just kind of cuts through it all and says to his disciples, and they're standing right there, by the way, right? They haven't gone anywhere. They're standing right there. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Wow, really? You don't go in a corner somewhere. Take your disciples, you know, off to the side, closed room, shut the door. All right, now look, guys, you know, I, I want to, oh no, oh no, this is, this is not after everyone has gone home and it's pitch dark and, you know, we've made camp for the night or wherever it is we're spending the evening at the Mount, of, Mount Olives Garden or what. No, no, this is right there in front of everyone. You all need to be aware of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Pharisees, which, by the way, is hypocrisy. Pay close attention. Beware. I want you guys to be on your guard about what's happened to the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, what is leaven? All right, leaven is yeast, right? Anybody who bakes bread, you know what yeast is. You get your dough and you put it all together and you get that nice big lump of dough. It's however big it is. And then you generally get a teaspoon and you put it in there, you know, and you mash it all up, you you work it all into it, and then you just set it. You know, you put it somewhere, maybe put a dishcloth over it or something, and uh, you just kind of, you know, come back. And when you come back, that, that little thing of dough is now a big thing of dough. Or maybe you put it in the bread pans and let it rise, the, you know, wherever it is you go about doing it, depending on what it is you're baking. But if you take that small little thing of dough and you let the yeast, which is a fungus, grow in it and it, it produces carbon dioxide, which is a gas. And, and because of the structure of, of the dough, it will maintain cohesion, but it expands. So this small thing of dough becomes this big thing of dough. Is there really any more dough actually there? And of course, there's not. There's no more dough there. It's the exact same amount of dough it was before. It's just that it's now full of gas. So the Pharisees are nothing but gas bags, right? I mean, who says God doesn't have a sense of humor, right? I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. It's like, look, these guys are just, it's like they've just swelled up. 
Oh, sure, they look like this big, self-important, magnificent religious guys and all of their robes and garbs and tassels and all of this stuff they've got. But really, they're just, it's like leaven. It, it's like you take this lump of dough, which isn't very big, but you put leaven in it and suddenly it swells up to this big thing. But there's, there's no more dough there than there was if you... Put it in the, in the small part. You need to be aware of this. They appear big. They appear like they're really important. But it's just an appearance. They're really not all that big and they're really not all that important. In fact, what they are is they're hypocrites. The leaven of the Pharisees, it's not yeast. That's not what they have. That's not what's happened to them. What's happened to them is hypocrisy. Now, the Greek word hypocrisy is the word, it's used in secular Greek in the theater. Uh, That's where it's mostly used. And to be a hypocrite was not in the way we would necessarily use that word at this point, but at the time, an actor would, and we're familiar with acting, actors get on the stage, and what makes a good actor a good actor? Well, they get up there and convince you that there's something they're not. I mean, that's, that's what they do. And if they're really good at it, then we will pay lots of money. We pay massive sums of money. There are an entire industry out there for people to get in front of a camera and to convince you that they are who knows what, you know, doctors, lawyers, spies, superheroes, you know, whatever in the world it is that, you know, the, whatever the script calls for. And people who are really good at it, you know, I, I'm Tom Hanks. Is he actually a nice guy? I I don't know, maybe he is. He certainly plays one very well. I mean, he does an amazing job of playing a nice guy. Is he a nice guy? I don't know, maybe. I can't say I've never met him. But all of these are just actors. They're putting on an act. They're not really lawyers. They're not really doctors. They're not really astronauts. They're not really soldiers. They're not really pilots. They just get on the camera and act like one. So here's what they do for a living. They're professional liars. It's what they are. They're professional liars. And they have more money than they have any idea what to do with. And why in the world anyone would allow some actor to get up and to give you any kind of moral guidance whatsoever about anything? You lie for a living at your job. You get up and act like you're something you're not. You're really good at it. I mean, we like to watch you do that. But really, your political opinions, your opinions on whatever in the world it is you've got an opinion on. Please, please. You have no moral authority whatsoever. You lie for a living. So the Pharisees, this word is what Jesus is using for them. They appear to be religious. They put on this air that we speak for God. We are those who clearly understand the law of Moses. We are those who can explain to you what it is God truly wants you to do. And they put it on. It's a good show. I mean, they make a good, they make a good go of it. But they're just hypocrites. They haven't got any more idea about what the law of Moses is about, for real, than a spoon knows the taste of food. I mean, it's there, it's next to them, they know it, they can quote it, but they don't get it. The law of Moses was to drive them to humility. It's to bring you to the place where you throw your hands up and go, no one can do this. I need God's grace. 
I need God's mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord. I, I've looked at the law of Moses. I, there is no way on the planet I can love my neighbor like I love myself. I just can't do it. And I certainly don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, I, I love God, but who in the world could possibly say they love God with everything they've got? And if you're saying that, you're just lying on top of everything else. You can't do that. And that's just two of the Ten Commandments. And yet the Pharisees, instead of actually admitting that and owing up to that, instead they get up there and they start declaring themselves to be God's true representatives. They declare themselves to be those who speak on behalf of God and instruct all of those who don't clearly understand it because they're obviously the experts. Jesus is like, you know, they're not the experts. They completely misunderstand the purpose and the plan and what God is actually doing. I want us to stop for just a moment because this passage applies to us. Jesus says, beware. Beware of hypocrisy. So let's just take a minute and, and think. Because we do want to be aware of this. We should think about, am I acting in a hypocritical fashion? Is it, is it possible that I could fall into this? Because part of the Pharisees' problem was that they had a really difficult time seeing this. And so would that describe us? Are we falling into this and having a difficult time seeing it? Let me, let me toss out a couple of verses for you, and, and we'll look at them and, and kind of See here. So here's the first verse, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it. You could probably quote it with me. It's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast, right? And we understand that. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the, the soul of, of what the scriptures teach. This is what makes us who we are as Christians. All other religions tell you what you have to do. You have to do this and do this and do this. And when you're done doing this and that, you've still got a few more things to do. It's all about what you've got to do. But true Christianity, the heart of this passage, it's by grace that you're saved. It is all of what Christ has done. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done. And what we do is rely on what Christ has done. That's the sum total of our, um, that's how the gospel works. The gospel is this great message that you don't have to do anything except rely on what Jesus has done. However, here's the next verse, and it's in Galatians. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you reap. So you get thinking about that verse and you think, okay, well, I want to have this relationship with God in which God is kind to me. I want the blessing of God. I want the approval of God. I want my life to be used of God. I want to be a vessel of God. I I, I want to be part of the work of God. And so I will reap what I sow. So I'm going to sow the right things, okay? I'm going to sow that I read my Bible. I'm going to sow that I do, in fact, attend church regularly. I'm trying to pray for others and for myself and my family. I'm I'm trying to do all of these various 
things. And I should be reaping what I sow, right? I mean, isn't that how that works? And see, that's where you can actually start falling into a pharisaical approach to your Christianity. You can actually, if you're not careful, if you're not being wary, you can get to the place where you start thinking, okay, since I am, and whatever that list is, whatever you've got on that list, since I'm doing those things, then God now has an obligation to, well, I don't know, when the pandemic comes around, me and mine won't get it. People get in car accidents, but we won't. Um, other people have tragedies happen to them, not us. And, and because, why? Well, because we reap what we sow, and what we're sowing is righteousness and faithfulness. And we are, so, so God is obligated. Now, we may not actually use that word. We may not even say it like that. But we can, that can begin to sneak into our theology. We can begin to think that our relationship with God is based on what we do. If I do all of the right things, God is happy with me. If I do bad things, God is unhappy with me. If God is happy with me, then all of these blessings will arrive. And if God is unhappy with me, all of these bad things will arrive. That is exactly what the Pharisees thought. If we start thinking like that, it becomes a problem. It can, it can become a problem from the other direction. Maybe your life is actually going really good. Maybe your bills are paid and you're reasonably healthy and you're on good terms with most everyone and your job seems quite secure and things seem to be going good. And you assume because of all of that, well, I don't know, God must be happy with me. And so since I've got this thing I'm doing that... I kind of, you know, actually, I think uh, I probably shouldn't be doing it. But you know what? I mean, I guess it's okay because, well, you know, I've got all this list of stuff that God is, I mean, obviously he's got to be happy with me. So I guess I can keep doing this thing that I actually thought I might want to feel guilty about. But I guess I don't have to because, well, I look at all the blessings of God on me. He must be pleased with me. Okay, that is a, you know, it's the flip side of that same coin that I'm willing to tolerate some kind of thing that I'm fairly certain I shouldn't be tolerating because of all the blessings God has given me. Here's how this actually works. God is gracious to us. Please live accordingly. That's how it actually works. You know, if God gave us what we deserved, hmm, that might be a little exciting. And even the Galatian passage goes on. Let me read it to you. The next verse says this. Those who sow to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, death. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit, well, I don't know, a new car, a better job, good health. Uh, you know, is that what it says? No, what it says, it will reap from the spirit eternal life. What the blessing of God is that we will be his children forever. We will be part of the family of God. Yes, our sins are forgiven. We have the peace of God in this life. But the blessing of God in this life is not necessarily material whatsoever. 
You may have all the material things you could possibly want. That might be the blessing of God. It might not be. It might just be that you live in America and there's all kinds of people who are completely godless who have all of their material needs met. The blessing of God is not reflected in the things that we possess. And we need to be careful about measuring our relationship with God based on the things we possess. Our relationship with God is based on his grace to us. And we should continuously come back to God and say, I am undeserving of the least of your favor. I am undeserving of the least of anything that you happen to to give me. Any material possession is just the grace of God. The loss of material possessions. No one wants to be Job, right? No one wants to be Job. But when you read the book of Job, which, by the way, I would encourage everyone, you should read the book of Job at least once a year. Once a year, you should make sure that you get in the book of Job. The argument in the book of Job that the devil basically makes is, look, the only reason Job serves you is because of all the blessings you pour on him. Who in the world wouldn't serve you? You built a hedge around him. Everything he touches turns to gold. I mean, the guy is just blessed beyond belief. So if you take that away, he'll curse you to your face. And of course, God took it away. And Job said, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of God. And then Satan comes back and God says to him again, so do you consider my servant Job? I mean, you moved me against him. By the way, God takes full account and full responsibility for what happened to Job. And of course, Satan comes back, well, skin for skin, you know, you let me touch his body, then I'll curse you. And so he ends up with boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, painful boils. And still, he worships God. And so the question arises for us as well, why do we serve God? Why are we faithful to God? What is it that is motivating us? What is coming out of our heart? The problem with hypocrisy and the problem that the Pharisees had, the Pharisees' whole problem was that they used religion to further their own ends. They saw religion as a way to elevate themselves. The more religious I act, the higher I am held in the esteem of men. The more honor I get, the longer my prayers are, the more righteous people think I am. The more I give to the poor, the more people stand back in awe of me. The the more I fast and make my face long and make it clear that I am starving to death, the more people go, oh, they're just so holy. And that was their whole motivation. They didn't do any of it to to bring honor to to God. This, This did not motivate or in any way animate them whatsoever. They didn't care. God, God was only a means for them to get what they wanted. This is why they're complete hypocrites. Because they claim to be godly. Oh, we speak for God. We are the most godly people around. They weren't godly at all. They were just selfish, proud hypocrites. Who only wanted the glory for themselves. They weren't motivated at all out of gratitude. They weren't motivated at all out of any kind of, well, I want to bring honor and glory to God through my life. And if the only way to bring that about is for me to be uh, humble, to be lowly, to come and to beg God to please be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, I weren't going there. 
They weren't going there. They weren't going to come to God and say, I'm a sinner. They came to God and said, look at how righteous I am. Look at all of this long stuff I've done. I've got this big, long list of things that I, that I characterize who I am. The question they face, the question everyone faces, the question we need to face is the question, why do I serve God? What does motivate me? This is why this passage is really important for us because Jesus says, beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of this little bit because if you just, you know, a little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. You've got a little bit of hypocrisy in there and the next thing you know, it just kind of grows. You know, it just, that's how leaven works. So the question is, why do I serve God? And the answer, of course, the correct answer is that I serve God Because of his grace. Now, the other answer is that, well, I serve God because of what it does for me. So if I do this list, if I, if I, you know, I I have the list and if I do it, then I'm kind of in control. I'm in control of the relationship. God is going to have to be good to me. I think a lot of people walk away from the faith Because without really thinking about it, this is how they define their Christianity. Have you ever known people who, you know, the Christians seemingly, they come to church, they they seem faithful and all. I mean, you, you know, they talk the talk. But then someone really near and dear to them perhaps gets either deathly ill or passes away. And the next thing you know, they're just spewing anger at God. They're just so mad at God. And, and, and they walk away from the faith, and you kind of look at it like, what happened to those folks? Here's what happened. They thought they had a deal. I had this deal. I was going to live my Christian life, and God was going to protect me from whatever in the world it was they thought. That's not how it works. Our lives are in the hands of God. Whether we get ill or whether we are healthy, whether we are in poverty or whether we are rich beyond belief, whatever the circumstances of our lives, the question is, have we just given our lives to God? We've given our children to God. We've given everything we have to God, and it's his to dispose with as however he'd like. And if he takes it away, well, like Job said, naked I showed up in this world. And by the way, they don't put U-Hauls on the back end of hearses, you know? I mean, naked I showed up, naked will depart. You know, there's no, this is how it happens in this world. We don't take any of it with us. So if I happen to be a steward of a little bit of it in the, in the middle, well, that's good. And try to be a good steward of it. It's good. It's okay. God's got no problem with giving us all kinds of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But we want to be careful that we don't somehow think that that's the measure of our relationship with God. It's not. And we must be continuously driven to display our gratitude. Oh, we may do the exact same things as the other group of people. The list may be identical. Please, by all means, faithfully attend church. And you should absolutely read your Bible daily. Memorize it. Think about it. Pray all the time without ceasing even. These are things we should be doing, but our motivation is not because we're building up some kind of an account with God so that when troubles come, he's going to have to, you know, be sure and protect us. Uh, no, we just do it because of what God has already done for us. God is already happy with us. God is already pleased with us. God has already forgiven us. 
The face of God is already smiling on us. We don't have to earn the, the smile of God. We don't have to earn. In fact, you can't earn the grace of God. The whole point of grace is you can't earn it. And so our relationship with God is one of, of freedom. If Jesus makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And this is exactly what he was talking about. Our relationship with God now is he sees us forgiven. The face of God smiles on us. Every day is a new opportunity to experience the marvelous grace and wonder and forgiveness of God. No one can look in our hearts. No one knows whether we really get that or not, except God. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to encourage his disciples and the crowds with. Next verse, verse 2. There's nothing covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So whatever you've said in the dark is going to be heard in the light, and whatever you whisper in the inner room is going to be proclaimed upon the housetop. You're not going to get away with anything. This is Jesus trying to help those who might be tempted to think that, well, I could show up on Sunday and try to convince everyone of what a great Christian I am, and, and I've, I've got the lingo down, and I'll say all the stuff I'm supposed to say. But, but really, I mean, okay, if that's you, if that's the life you're living, you're not getting away with anything. You won't get away with anything. The moment will come, and it may not be until the day of judgment, but if that's the last place you want to show up but it's going to show up and whatever you've tried to cover up will be revealed and whatever you've tried to hide will be known and whatever you think you've said in the dark where you know you just whisper it in someone's ear it will be proclaimed from the rooftops this is jesus warning to those who might be tempted to fall into a hypocritical approach to this whole relationship it, it's not going to work and so He now says in verse 4, to his disciples and to those who want to be disciples, speaking specifically again about the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious and governmental leaders, which were the same people, by the way, in Israel. I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. And you need to stop and think about that for a second. You're like, wait a minute. I can kill my body. I mean, you know, that isn't that kind of the end of things? No, no, not really. No, they can kill your body and then, and then they're powerless to do anything else. I warn you whom to fear. I mean, if you want to have fear, and by the way, we should have some fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When the time comes to decide whether you're going to be faithful and true to Jesus or whether you're going to fear governmental or religious authorities, Jesus is making it very clear to his disciples, look, you really need to fear God, because the power of God extends after death. The Pharisees and the scribes, sure, they'll drag you before tribunals. They'll drag you before the Roman authorities. They may not even bother to drag you in front of them. They may, like Stephen, just drag you outside town and stone you. They may very well kill you. They have power over your body. They can do things to you that you don't want done. But once you're dead, now you're in the hands of God. And so you really need to fear God. And Jesus is trying to help folks who might be tempted to, like, well, I'm going to put on a religious front right up until it costs me something. I'm going to try to act religious right up until they make laws that begin to impact me. Well, then, I don't know, I'm not not sure about that. And, of course, this was very relevant to that day and age and is 
working on becoming more relevant to our own day and age. But they would, of course, if they decided Jesus was the Messiah, would be put out of the synagogue. They would eventually be dragged before authorities. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand, look, God forgives, God is gracious, God is kind, God is compassionate. If you put your hands, your life in his hands, even if they kill you, it won't matter. It won't matter. God will love you and forgive you and give you an eternal place in his own. It's the true heart of a Christian is gratitude. We just can't believe God is so good to us. Who are we to deserve the grace of God? Who are we that God would give his own son for us? And that just moves us to want to please God. And that's what drives us. That's what makes us who we are. And it's a service of joy. This is why Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. All I have to do is be thankful. And you'll, you'll serve God. The other side is just terrible. You'll see God is angry at you and mad at you. And he'll constantly have an angry face and be ready to bludgeon you the minute you step out of line. And what a horrible relationship to have with a loving, gracious God. True Christians, they see the face of God smiling on them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great, gracious God you are. Lord, we we don't deserve the least of your favor, and yet you pour out. I mean, you emptied the, the greatest treasure heaven had sending your son here. We celebrate that here at the Christmas time, the babe in the manger departing heaven. And yet we know the end of the story where all of mankind rejects your son, crucifies him. And yet he willingly allows it to happen, allows himself to be given as a sacrifice for us. Thank you, Lord. May gratitude fill our hearts. May we serve you with joy with praise on our lips, with singing, with the amazing peace of God, rejoicing evermore, praying without ceasing and in everything, giving thanks because of what a great God you are. And that characterize us every day. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.